0: If you have a Bible, you can take it and turn to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 1. And we will be in Acts 1, uh, verses 12 through 26. So we will uh, complete the chapter this afternoon. Acts 1, verses 12 through 26. My goal this afternoon, as we look at this account, which occurs in the 10 days uh, between Jesus' ascension on the Mount of Olives and the descent of the Spirit on the day of Pentecost. Uh, my goal is, is threefold. Uh, one, I want to paint a picture of the scene in verses 12 through 14. So the first goal is to paint a picture. Uh, not literally. I don't have a chalk drawing of any kind. Not that talented. But to paint a picture of, of this scene, who was there and what they were doing. Uh, My second goal would be to explain the importance of uh, the actions of Peter and the other uh, members of the early church in verses 15 through 26. So to explain the importance of what they're doing in replacing Judas. On the surface, it doesn't seem very important, but I think it is, and so I want to explain the importance of that. And then my third goal is to provide a model for us all in seeking God's guidance as individuals and as a church so we're going to see the early church seek the will of the Lord and give us a beautiful model for how we can do that as a church and in our own individual lives so I want to paint a picture I want to explain the importance and I want to provide this model that we find here in these scriptures for seeking God's guidance and my hope in doing these three things is that we would leave knowing and even feeling that we are grounded And guided, grounded in the truth of our beliefs and in the sovereignty of God and also guided by him as individuals and as a church. So I'll have a a more of a main idea later on. But for now, let's just let this title grounded and guided that will kind of serve to frame where we're heading, grounded and guided. Last week, when we left the disciples, they were standing on the Mount of Olives. Uh, they had been staring into the sky, having just watched Jesus ascend. If you can remember that, he disappeared into the clouds. And then two angels appeared there on the mountain with them and encouraged them to stop staring into the sky, but instead to go, assuring them that just as Jesus had gone into the sky, he would again return. So following that scene, we find these this description in Acts 1, beginning in verse 12, and I'll just read 12 to 14. It says, Then they, referring specifically to the disciples, returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot, and Judas, the son of James. All these were with one accord, with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. So in verse 12, we see the disciples descend the Mount of Olives and they enter through the East Gate of Jerusalem. This was a a little over a half mile journey, maybe about a 15 minute walk though their adrenaline is probably going. And so I don't think it took them that long to get to the East Gate and get back into uh, the city. Luke gives some further details in Luke 24, 52 and 53. He says that following the ascension, they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. So from a place of fear and confusion a little over a month ago, they have moved to worship and joy. Despite the fact that Jesus has just departed from them, they're filled with joy. They've been transformed by the words of Jesus, by the words of the angels, by the, the things that they have, have seen. They know that Jesus truly rose from the dead. He's consistently and constantly confirmed it over the past 40 days. They are rock solid sure of this. And they know that the kingdom has come and is coming in some form, maybe beyond what they ever imagined. But it's it's here And they are to be witnesses of its arrival as they share the words and the deeds of Jesus. And they also know that the promise of the Spirit is coming. It's coming not many days from now. And so they enter Jerusalem not afraid for their lives anymore, but they enter with confidence and joy, praising and worshiping God. You can almost see them walking down the streets of Jerusalem, hardly able to contain their excitement they remind me maybe of a a bunch of high school seniors having just got let out of their last class of the last year of their high school career. And they sort of walk out of the doors of the school. They're full of hope. The sun is is shining. They have freedom. They have joy. The summer is, is ready. It's before them. They're ready to take it on. They're ready to take on this new chapter of their lives. They have no idea what the future holds, but they're just excited for it. That's what the disciples remind me of. And so as they sort of float down the, the streets of Jerusalem, they arrive at the upper room where they we are told that they were staying. We might assume that this is the same upper room where they had shared the Passover meal with Jesus, and that might be the case. Um, if it was, you can imagine how that room would be filled with very specific memories. Uh, for a time, those memories had brought sadness, but after everything that they had just experienced in the previous forty days, all these sights and the smells and the tastes that were associated with that room would take on this brand new meaning for them. Of course, it may have been a different upper room altogether. But we're not really sure. There's another prayer meeting in Jerusalem that's held in the home of John Mark's mother, whose name is Mary. That's in Acts 12:12. 12, 12. So it could have been that that's where they landed. It could be that those are actually the same. That that that's where they just always met. Um, but whatever the upper room is, it's a place that's large enough for the disciples and the others that are described here to be, and eventually for 120 people to gather. So this is a fairly good-sized room. So why don't we sort of, in our mind's eye, go up the stairs and, and, and walk into this room and see what it's, what it's like. Who's there? Uh, what, are, what are they doing in this, in this room? What is the, happening here in the early church? So first of all, who was there? Who's in the room when you walk into it and you sort of look around? Well, the disciples, of course, are present. Uh, Now just 11 of them. They are listed in much the same way that they are throughout the Gospels, minus the now familiar closing line of, and Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. That's no longer there. Judas, the son of James, is identified, but not Judas Iscariot. We'll come back to him a little bit later. But for now we can note that Peter, James, and John are at the front of the list, as usual. And in fact, we could say that they will be the only disciples whose names appear again in the book of Acts or in the rest of the New Testament, for that matter. Now, you might say, what about Philip in chapter 8? Which is what I said when F.F. F. Bruce told me that this is the last time these names are mentioned. I said, well, what about Philip? To which he, I did some research and found that actually the Philip in chapter 8 is not Philip the disciple. It's most likely Philip. um, This is the Philip who takes the gospel to to Samaria, preaches to the Ethiopian eunuch. This is the deacon Philip who's mentioned in Acts chapter 6. He's also known as Philip the evangelist. So this is not the disciple Philip. So if you thought that like I did, it's not. Um, So we can see these, these 11 men. But we also can look around the room and we can see a, a number of, of women. Oh, these faithful women that are here. These faces are not new to us. Luke has has pointed out the importance of these women in the life and the ministry of Jesus consistently. Luke 8 says that as Jesus traveled and ministers, ministered, the disciples were with him. But also, he says in Luke 8, also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna, and many others. Luke also tells us in Luke 8 that they financially supported Jesus in his ministry. And then we see them again, that when the disciples had fled, they are there witnessing the death and the burial of Jesus. They are the first to see Jesus resurrected on the first Easter morning. And as we look around, we see these these brave, faithful women who were right there alongside the disciples. Um, and as we look at them, we might look around the room and see the disciples and see the women, but then our eyes would settle on, on one woman in particular because Luke tells us that Mary, the mother of Jesus, was there in that room. Isn't that interesting? Interesting is not the right word for it. It's beautiful. She's, she's now a woman probably most likely in her late 40s or early 50s. Um, she's probably a widow at this point, given that Joseph is absent during the ministry years of Jesus and the fact that Jesus on the cross entrusts the care of his mother to John. So she is probably a widow. Now, as you look at Mary, don't let all the incorrect worship of Mary keep you from being encouraged by her and learning from her. When you think about who had been with Jesus the longest, uh, Mary is the clear winner. Uh, Mary had carried Jesus in her womb for for nine months, and then she had carried him for many days after that. She watched him grow. She probably witnessed many of his early ministry days. We were told in Luke 1 that she pondered things in her heart, and she's been pondering in her heart for decades, just who Jesus is, just who her son is. And now she sits here in this room with men and women who have come to see along with her that he was, that he is God himself sent to be the savior of the world. She also believes that though he ascended, he is coming again, and she is there waiting for the spirit with them. So we see Mary sitting somewhere, and, and near Mary we also see uh, her, her other sons, we see Jesus' brothers. In fact, the word brothers here could also be referring to uh, all of Jesus' siblings, his brothers and his sisters. So among this this group gathered of the disciples and the faithful women, we have a, a family group. And the family of Jesus is is there. The surprise here is found when we remember how Jesus' brothers and sisters had ridiculed him and rejected him during his ministry. Now, if you need evidence of that, Mark 3.21 and John 7, 5, talk about that. You can check those out. But we could understand why that would be hard. Why it would be hard to be uh, the brother or sister of Jesus. Um, no prophet has any honor in his own hometown, let alone in his own home. Uh, and surely it would have been hard to have Jesus as a brother. You know, when your brother has a star appear at his birth... It's hard to top that. And when he is, is sort of the one person in all of human history who never sinned, it's, it's hard to get out from underneath that shadow. But despite all their previous denials and their mockery of Jesus, here, here they are. What a wonderful picture that Jesus and his, his mother and his brothers are there. We know maybe the reason in part is that in 1 Corinthians fifteen seven Jesus appears at least to his brother James. There's a a specific appearance to to Jesus' brother James that's mentioned in 1 Corinthians 15.7. Maybe he made a specific appearance to his family during those 40 days. Maybe they were there uh, in that group of 500 when Jesus appeared to that large group. We don't really know, but they're here now. And so we have all these individuals, and they're up in the upper room. They're they're sharing stories. They're, They're sharing meals over the course of these 10 days. And over the course of these 10 days between Jesus' ascension and the day of Pentecost, this group is going to swell to 120 people. I would imagine that some of the 70, 72 disciples that had been sent out during Jesus' ministry, I imagine some of them show up um, in the upper room there. In my imagination, I wonder, you know, is maybe John Mark, he would make sense to be there. Um, maybe the Roman centurions there. You know the guy who said, "Surely this man was the Son of God. maybe he just knocked on the door. I don't know. I don't want to imagine too much because I don't have any proof but but whatever I, is going on, we know that this is an exciting place. If you put yourself in this room, this there's something happening, there's joy, there's an electricity that's there, and as we look at the faces and we feel the joy and we feel this anticipation, two thoughts come to mind as as i as Luke paints this picture for us. the first is that I think when we linger here and we allow Luke's words to sort of paint this picture for us, we find that this, this upper room scene has the resounding ring of truth to it. This doesn't sound like some cleverly devised fable. It sounds like history. It sounds like something that really happened that eyewitnesses told about that it was a gathering of, of men and women who were truly present and were there. And they talked to Luke and they said, here's what it was like when we were waiting for the Spirit. This is who was in the room and this is what was happening. So it has this, this ring of truth to it. And secondly, I'm struck by, by the long-range faithfulness of some of these men and women. And in that, the faithfulness of Jesus to, to all of them. The, this this faithfulness of of the followers of Christ. We noted Mary, who had been faithful following Jesus her whole life. We talked about the disciples who had walked with him through thick and thin, and then we talked about the women who were there even when the disciples weren't. Um, and we'll see later that, that some of those present had been with Jesus just like the, the disciples, from John's baptism all the way to the ascension. They had been there. They're not recognized as, as apostles, but they are faithful. They stick by Jesus throughout his entire life and even after his death. And now, here they all are because Jesus has has been faithful to them. Jesus has been faithful to, to keep them together. Peter, who was humbled by his denial, is present. He hasn't run away. He's, he's there. And Thomas, who had doubted, uh, has shaken off that misstep and is and is waiting here with everyone else and it reminds me of John 17:12 where Jesus is praying to the Father and he says, "While I was with them, I protected and preserved them by your name, the name you gave me. Not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, so that the scripture would be fulfilled." And and this upper room gathering shows us that Jesus did just that that he kept his people his, the, his disciples, his followers, he kept them together. And here they are. And and the, as I look around this room, I don't know about you, but as I think about this group, it, it just makes me want to be faithful. Faithful over the, the long haul. To keep moving forward in faith, to, to not deny Christ, to be found in him, to, to trust to that when I'm faithless, he will remain faithful because he cannot deny himself. But I want to I want to be in the upper room. I, I, they, remain, they remind me of, of this long line of faithful saints that doesn't just go back to them, but goes back to, to men like Abraham, because this is all one long story. And and people who were faithful throughout all those ages, all the way to people who I know in this room who are faithful saints, who have walked with Jesus for a long period of time. And this faithfulness that, that strings all through those centuries. And I, I just want to be faithful. They re, they remind me of, of guys like Polycarp, who are the second generation after them. He was an early believer discipled by the Apostle John. And he faced persecution, as many in the early days of the church did, and he was told to deny Christ, and if he would, that his life would be spared. And some of you know his dying words, which he said, which were eighty six years have I served him. I love that. Eighty six years. Now, 86 years have I served him. So was he older than 86? I don't know, but whatever it is, 86 years have I served him, and he has never done me injury. How then can I now blaspheme my King and Savior? Faithful. He was faithful for many years and faithful to the end because Jesus was faithful to him. And as we look at this room, may, may, may we be the same. By God's grace, may we be faithful. May we be found in the upper room, whatever that looks like. And may we also be faithful to Jesus, even if it costs us our lives. Some of the people in this room, in fact, most of, a lot of them, all the disciples except for John would be faithful all the way to the point of martyrdom. May we be the same. So as we look at this room, these people, I believe with all my heart that these things truly happened that jesus truly lived that he truly died that he truly rose he truly ascended and he truly sent them back to this upper room to wait for the spirit and i believe that all people men and women whether walking with him for a lifetime or late comers to the party all who believe in jesus who trust that his death for sins pays the penalty for theirs and that his resurrection brings them life everyone who believes that will be saved so do you do you believe that are you in the upper room with the disciples? What does it take to get in there? He just calls us to repent and to believe. I said I long for this, this lifetime of faithfulness, and that longevity, but that longevity is not what's needed for my forgiveness and my redemption. Rather, it's the faithfulness of Jesus that saves us whether we follow him as children or finally bow the knee on our deathbed but if we would repent and believe he makes us his own so that's long enough to paint the picture of the people who were there but what are they doing what's going on in this 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 room in Luke we're told that they were daily in the temple and here we say that we see that when they were not in the temple then they were in the upper room praying even before the coming of the spirit god's people gathered together, were devoted to worship and to prayer, not simply as individuals, but, but corporately. This is obedience to Christ's command. He told them to wait in Jerusalem, and it's coupled with prayer because waiting is always coupled with prayer. Jesus, even in the garden, said, watch and pray, wait and pray. It's interesting to me to note that the Spirit is coming, but they are praying for the spirit to come and they're praying for God's continued guidance. John Stock connects the dots for us when he says, God's promises do not render prayer superfluous or unnecessary. On the contrary, it is only his promises which give us the warrant to pray and the confidence that he will hear and answer. The more we know God's sure and certain promises, the more confidently we can pray. The more we know God's character through his word, the bolder we can be in what we ask of him. God's, God's sovereignty, his promises don't eliminate the need for prayer. Don't ever think that. Rather, God's sovereignty and his promises bring power to our prayers. We know, we, we come trusting that God truly is sovereign. God, God truly is controlling all things and that his promises are certain that his character is unchanging so we come with confidence we don't come to a god who is always changing that we never know what he's going to be like maybe he's in a bad mood and he's not going to listen to us this time no his character is consistent and we come to a god who is always able always in control of every situation we don't come to a god where he can't control this specific circumstance his power is too small or this is not important enough no he is able to do all these things so we come with with great confidence we pray with confidence based on the truth that we have in the scriptures and so grace fellowship church let's let's pray as we wait we're kind of always in this period of waiting waiting for Christ to come but i feel in some ways we're in a unique place of waiting aren't we we're waiting for what's next and we trust that God will use his church and let's pray that he would show us how he's going to do that. And as we do that, we we reflect this first gathering as we sit here in the foyer, as we did last week and as we will do this week. And as we pray, we say that that prayer is at the heart of who God's children are through faith and that we are a people who are always in some ways waiting, waiting for present answers, waiting for future glory. And as we wait, we pray. That's what we always do. If we're always waiting, then let's always be praying and seeking God. So they're they're filling the upper room there. What are they doing? They're filling the upper room with worship and with prayer. But in addition to these sort of general things that are going on, we also find that they're about a specific task. And that specific task is replacing Judas. Let's read about that. Acts chapter 1 verses 15 through 26. In those days, so this is during those 10 days, Peter stood up among the brothers, the company of persons was in all about 120, and said, brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his bowels gushed out and it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the field was called in their own language, a that is field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it and let another take his office. So one of the men who have accompanied us To take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. A lot of questions that arise looking at this passage. One of the questions has to do with how Judas died. Um, and who purchased this field that he was buried in. You can see the description that Luke gives here in verses 18 through 19. Kind of gruesome. We thought about putting that on the front of the bulletin, but figured we would go with a different verse. Um, it, and, and these words are uh, not part of Peter's original speech. You can see that. They're kind of bracketed off possibly in your translation. Um, they're included here for us as readers to understand who this Judas was and what happened to him. Everyone there knew who Judas was, and they knew the whole story. Um, There are some apparent disagreements between what Luke says happened to Judas and what Matthew said happened to Judas about exactly how he died. I think those are easily resolved, and so I will leave you to discern that apparent discrepancy. But if you want to talk about it, we can. We just won't spend time now at this point. But whatever conclusions you come to... It's obvious that he is not one of the people in the room. Judas is not there. He is dead. And so there's only 11 apostles. And this seems to be a problem. Now, as I move from verses 14, verse 14 to verse 15, the question I want to ask is, more than how did Judas die is, why is this even here? Why is the account of Judas's replacement included? If I'm Luke's editor... Uh, I think I'd say, you know, just cut that whole part out. It's not necessary. Nobody wants to be reminded about Judas. Uh, Matthias never shows back up again. He's just a character that you leave sort of hanging out there, and we never know anything else about him. As best I can tell, the, mer- the narrative could move from verse 14 to chapter 2, verse 1, very easily. And chapter 2 is where we're, we're trying to get to anyways. This is what we and the disciples are waiting for, the coming of the Spirit. This is the cliffhanger that we were left with from verse eight verse five, verse eight. And instead of resolving that that tension, we watch the early believers decide who should replace Judas as a disciple. Why? Why is this important? Let me encourage you. Ask questions like that when you're reading through the scriptures. Why is this here? And why in this place? What's important about it? Here's what I think this passage And and this whole section in some way calls us to do. Here's a big idea for you. Remain rooted in the truth and follow God's sovereign leading. Now, I'm trying to make that applicable to us, but we'll hopefully see how that applies here. But remain rooted in the truth and follow God's sovereign leading. This event reminds us of the historical roots of our faith, and our root, and the roots of our faith in God's sovereignty over everything. And it gives us confidence to seek for his guidance and his direction. So remain rooted in the truth. Follow God's sovereign leading. So why is it important for Judas to be replaced? Why is it important? Let me give you um, a few answers to that. First, God's sovereign... So that God's, I'm sorry. Here's my answer to that question. Why it Judas needs to be replaced? Why this is so important? It's so that God's sovereign purposes will be fulfilled. God has purposes that he's accomplishing, and these things need to be fulfilled. So Peter begins by quoting two passages from the book of Psalms and saying that this is what was predicted by them, and it had to be fulfilled. These predictions include the betrayal of Judas and the replacement of Judas. So the betrayal of Judas had to happen. That's what verse 16 says. The scriptures had to be fulfilled this had to happen it's it's in the description of the scriptures that the holy spirit said this by david he said that that jesus would be betrayed so this had to happen and then in verse 22 we see that someone must take judas's place one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection so the scriptures, God's sovereign purposes through the scriptures, this has to happen because the scriptures said it would happen. So we have to deal with this. I think we see here right at the very beginning, the church is submitting to the word of God, that if the scriptures say it, they will do it. They are centered on God's revealed truth and always ready to obey it. That's what the church should always be, right? Centered on the scriptures, saturated with the scriptures, always ready to obey What they say. Now, it's interesting to me to think that this betrayal by Judas is ordained by God, that this is part of the plan. I don't presume to know why God would choose the betrayal of Judas to bring about his purposes. I don't know why, any more than I know why there's pain and suffering and wickedness in your life and in my life. Why are there Judases in our lives? Why are there Judas-like situations in our lives? I don't know. But I can trust that if Judas, who was instrumental, a key part of the death of the Son of God, if that is under God's sovereign control, then so is everything else in my life. So are all of the other wicked and terrible things that happen in your life and in my life, that God is in control That even though he is not the author of evil, he is ordaining all things and his purposes are being accomplished. We can trust that God is working some great purpose in this world, even in the midst of wickedness. Just as we can say that Judas and his betrayal were ordained by God. Now, why did Judas have to be replaced other than that the scripture said it would happen? It would seem to tie in to the promises that were made to Israel. And the fulfillment that's found in God's people who are now here believing in Jesus. So, twelve, of course, is a key number in Scripture. It's the number of the twelve tribes, um, and I don't think there's any mistake in Jesus picking twelve disciples. There's an importance to that. It's not just the number that he pulled out of a hat. There's a, a specific reason. And and so too with this hundred and twenty. I think Luke points that out. I, some say that 120 was the number that was required for if a, if a group of Jewish people wanted to form a new group with new leadership, there needed to be at least 120 people. And so that's sort of pointed out here. We have the, the new group and we have the, the new leaders. And it would seem that having 12 men corresponding to those 12 tribes of Israel connects them back to this Jewish heritage, to the heritage in Israel and testifies that this is now the new Israel. This is now the new people of God being formed in this upper room. Not necessarily new, but maybe the fulfillment of what God has been doing. They're not separate from God's people of the past. They are a fulfillment of everything that it stood for. So there has to be 12. How amazing, how intricate God, God's plans are, how unexpected they are but there is cont- continuity to him, There's structure to them. There's a purpose in everything that he does right down to the number of disciples that are chosen and the size of the crowd that's present there at Pentecost. So I think the replacement of Judas is showing us God's sovereign purposes will be fulfilled. He is working in all these things. And they also show us that the person and work of Jesus are central. That the person and work of Jesus are central. The person that's going to replace Judas is described in verses 21 and 22. And the qualifications show the centrality of the words and the works of Jesus, especially his resurrection. So the apostles are witnesses to the world. They're witnesses of everything that Jesus said and did. And the the faith is rooted in Jesus. They need people who can attest to who he was and what he did. Our faith, what we believe is rooted in Christ And what we know about Christ has been passed down through men and women by the work of the Spirit all the way back to these 12. These men who were in this room who believed these things, they have passed it on to us. We are witnesses because the early church valued eyewitnesses and said, we need these guys. So this episode attests to the way that God has led, his, the way his, his plans with his people Israel, his purposes through Jesus, even his control over Judas. And we can see and know these deep things. They lead us to trust that God is leading in our lives. God is in control of all things, that our lives are part of this grand narrative and the Father is leading, he's guiding us even now. Even terrible things that happen, even things that we don't want to happen are not out of his control, but they are ordained, ordained by him for his glory. And so we are encouraged to remain rooted in the truth, to trust that that this is part of his plan and to follow his sovereign leading. And as the church is doing that, I just want us to note that they give us this wonderful model for how to seek to know God's hand and plans in our lives we see that they they focus on four different things. And I think this forms a great simple way for us to seek God's will for ourselves as individuals and as a church. They're focused first on the scriptures. We've, We've identified this. They're focused on the scriptures. God's word guides and directs them. It instructs them just as it instructs us and commands us. It gives specific instructions. It gives general principles that we would ignore to our own peril and that we would obey obey for our eternal joy. So just as as Peter directed the people to the scriptures, he said, this is what the scriptures said, so this is what we need to do. God's word should always be the first place that we turn to when we're looking for direction, when we're waiting, when things are uncertain. In all of life, we turn to God's word as we make decisions and as we look for his guidance. So the scriptures. Next, we look at wisdom and wisdom. And reason, wisdom and reason. God has given us minds that are able to think and process and understand. These early believers understood that they needed a 12th witness and they knew what was important for him to have seen and heard. He needs to have been there for John's baptism and he needs to have been there all the way through to the ascension. He needs to have seen all of that. They said, this is what's important. They knew that. And then in the same way, While our logic often fails, God has given us minds to understand the world and the situations around us. And he's put us in community where together we can put our heads together and share wisdom. That's why when we're looking at locations, we say, let's take the whole church because there's wisdom in God's people. There's wisdom in our in our heads, there's wisdom that Scripture leads us to, the Spirit is guiding us, but there's also this this logic, this reason, this wisdom that we have. It's not all we have, but it is something that we're able to use as we look for God's direction in our lives. Of course, our thoughts, if they are in conflict with Scripture, then they are wrong. Scripture always trumps our own reason, but it is there to help us. So we turn to the Scriptures, we turn to our wisdom and reason, we next note that they... Of course, they're turning to prayer. They turn to prayer. Verse 24, they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all. What a wonderful phrase. You know the hearts of all. Show us which one of these you have chosen. Prayer, seeking God's will and direction by calling out to him is well modeled in the early church, and it must be a part of our lives as individuals and as a corporate body. We've seen this already, so we we need to ask God for wisdom. And then fourth, I would say the Spirit's leading. Maybe you were expecting me to say casting lots. I don't think uh, we should cast lots. Here the church is casting lots. Uh, Whatever that looked like, drawing straws, you know. um, Matthias gets the, the short straw, and I don't know, Joseph uh, gets the long one, maybe just because he had too many nicknames. And they, you know, We just want the guy with one name, Matthias. Anyways, the casting of lots here. Uh, this is a scripturally affirmed Old Testament way to seek God's will. This is not a wrong thing that the early church did, but it's the last time that we see it in the New Testament. And I think that's because in the next chapter, the spirit comes. The spirit arrives, indwells believers, indwells the church, and he is even more clear than the casting of lots. We'll see the church make decisions in the book of Acts by the leading of the Spirit. You can think of Acts 13 is 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 one where the church prays, you remember, and the Spirit says, set apart for me, uh, Paul and Barnabas, for the work that I have for them. The Spirit is guiding more clearly than uh, the casting of lots. So lots are no longer needed because the Spirit will lead and guide us as we need to be. I wonder if we sometimes don't feel that his leading is as clear because we haven't applied those first ones of seeking God through his scriptures, of, of putting our heads together within community and processing through things, and then of really spending time praying and asking for him to guide us. And if we do that, it'll be cl- as clear as casting lots, if not clearer, the way that the spirit guides us. What a wonderful model they give us here for how to make decisions. I don't know about you, it's always about, you know, how do I know the will of God for my life? Here's a wonderful pattern. What do the scriptures say? What are specific commands to do or to not do? What are some general principles that the Bible teaches me about how I should live my life? What is the counsel of others and the own wisdom that I have as I meditate on things? What does that say to me? Have I prayed? Have I submitted my will, my plans to God and my, this decision to him? And then to trust that the spirit will guide us to know what we are supposed to do. That works both for us as individuals, but it works for us as a church too. May we learn uh, how to do that well. Uh, Again, my hope is that we would leave this afternoon feeling deeply grounded and feeling sovereignly guided. Grounded and guided grounded in the the reality of what we see here that this that this truly happened grounded in in God's sovereignty grounded in the fact that we can watch what he is doing through his people in these early days and know that he is still at work and also know that we are guided that that God is moving in the course of history and he's moving in the course of our individual lives and we can know that his spirit will guide us and lead us and help us to know as individuals, as a church, as families, what is right and where we are supposed to go and what he has for us. Let's take a moment of silence to reflect on God's word, and then I will pray for us. God we we thank you for these verses that thank you that I was not the editor of acts that these are here and they are encouraging and that they are good for us to read and to learn from I pray that you would take these words that I've said and and bring some clarity to them in our own hearts and our minds I pray for our church Lord that we Would be faithful, that we would be filled with faithful men and women like those that were gathered in that upper room. I pray that we would be those that are always seeking Your will. I pray that we would be those who are centered on Scripture. That are a community that thinks and processes together. That we are a community that that prays even more than we do that, and that we are a community that is looking for Your guidance. Trusting that your spirit will lead us into your will and into your truth. Lord, we ask for um, your help and and your wisdom to permeate this place, to permeate our lives. Thank you for your word. Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.